listening to the Creating a Brand podcast, where we deliver weekly masterclass interviews on topics to help you make your first or next step in business the right one. I'm your host, Alex Sanfilippo. In today's episode, I have the privilege of interviewing the man who has the most popular solo blog in the world, Seth Godin. Join us as we talk through some of the high-level points from his latest book, The Practice, which one is an incredible book, but was also just announced as a bestseller. This is his 20th best-selling book. Profound is the one word I would use to describe not only this book, but also this episode today. Seth shares that there is a pattern to who succeeds and who doesn't, and in this episode, he's going to share that pattern with us. I'm telling you now that this interview has the potential to set you free to do your best creative work. For links and resources that will be mentioned during this episode, you can visit creatingabrand.com slash 074. Now, I know I've taught this episode up enough, so I won't make you wait any longer. Here is my conversation with Seth Godin. Seth, welcome to the Creating a Brand podcast. It's an honor to have you here today. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this podcast. It's helping a lot of people. Yeah, thank you so much for the kind words. I really appreciate it. Actually, when I was preparing for this this interview, I, I read the entire book, The Practice, your, your latest book, which I believe will be your 20th bestseller, if I'm doing math right there. Um, hard to keep count. But uh, I wrote down one simple question. I said, my goal is to ask the questions that measure up to the highest potential response that Seth can provide to the Creating a Brand listeners. So that was as far as I made it in my notes for our <laughs> conversation today. <laughs> Yeah, some, sometimes I can do a little better than that, but today that's really where I was at. And I know ultimately what we want to do is we want to help the listeners understand the difference between results and the process. And I'd love to just kind of start the conversation there. Okay, well, if you've ever asked the question, will this be on the test, uh, then you're a victim of the educational system. Because will this be on the test means if you promise me I will get what I want, then I will pay attention. Then I will uh, put in a little bit of effort. Then I will memorize something. And so we've trained people for 12 or 15 years to ask that question. And then they get to work and we do the same thing, which is you want me to do something, where's the prize? And the problem with being attached to the outcome is it pushes us to be a hack. It pushes us to simply give people what they want right now and prevents us from doing the work we know we can do. But that work, that process, that practice is the result of committing to a practice. You don't say, I'm willing to go running for the first time ever if you promise I'm going to win the Boston Marathon. You simply say, I'm going to run around the block today and I'm going to do it again tomorrow. Yeah, it's definitely so true for all of our lives. It's not the things we do one time and expect a an incredible outcome, right? It's the small actions we take every day that lead to something incredible. And in the book, you actually call this intentional action. Uh, you call it design thinking. Is something that you refer to this as. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, design thinking gets thrown around a lot, but people don't really understand it. So I'm calling it intentional action with the following uh, definition. You have to be able to answer the question, who's it for and what's it for? Who exactly are you doing this for? And what change do you seek to make? If you can't answer those questions, then you're not trying to make a change or you're trying to be so generic that you don't want to be on the hook. And it feels to me like if it's worth doing, it's worth doing with intent. And the thing is, the who's it for and the what's it for doesn't mean it's guaranteed to work, but it means you have a compass. It means you're clear with yourself about what you're trying to do. Can you give us a practical example of this has looked like in, in your life? Um, well, anything in the world around you that works is an example of this. So what is the purpose of a door in front of your house? 
Well, it has lots of purposes. It is designed to keep out the cold air, to keep out strangers. It's designed to give you a sense of security when you close it. It's designed to be reliable and on and on. So if someone comes home and says, hey, honey, I installed uh, a screen door and took down our regular door, the spouse can appropriately say, that was a bad idea because that's not what it's for, right? And we can look at the choices that we make and say, well, what's the, who's it for of this thing I did? So a lot of times, for example, uh, I'll end a talk and I'll say, any questions? And some people will wait because they want to ask me their secret question later when I'm leaving, which never works. And some people ask a question that's super, super specific about them. Who's it for? Well, it's for them. They're being selfish. What's it for? It's for them to engage with me in front of all these other people. Not helpful. A good question is a question that other people want to hear the answer to. What's it for? Why am I asking it? Because I want to be seen as a generous leader in this community. Why am I asking it? Because I'll benefit as well as other people. Who's it for? What's it for? And when I write a blog post or show up with a new book or give a speech, I am really focused on those two questions. Who am I seeking to serve and what change am I seeking to make? Who's it for and what's it for? I think that many of us, we immediately want to say, especially in today's world, Seth, I'm just going to kind of call it out here, but many of us want to say that it's for everybody, right? I think that many people will say that, but that can't be true. Nothing is for everybody. If it's for everybody, it's for nobody. Exactly. Uh, and, and with your blog, did you initially start it? Because now it reaches so many people, but uh, talking about practice that you've put in over the years, 7,000 plus posts, I know. But initially, did you say this is going to be for to serve the internet? Or did you have somebody specific in mind? What did that look like for you? My blog isn't even close to serving the internet. It only reaches one out of every 6,000 people on the planet. Um, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. And that means 5,999 out of every 6,000 people have never read it and never will. So no, it's not for everyone. And the minute you say it's for everyone, you're just trying to let yourself off the hook or open yourself up to get punched in the face by someone who doesn't get the joke. (laughs) The only alternative is to say it's for someone very specific, what they believe, what they want, what they dream of, who they connect with, what language they speak, and everything else. And the more specific you can be, the more likely it is you will do good work. Because who is judging your work? a specific group of people. So if you look online, uh, Harry Potter has gotten more one-star reviews than any book I've ever written. How is it possible to give Harry Potter a one-star review? Well, the answer is it wasn't for you. If you're not the kind of person that wants to read young adult fiction about a teen wizard, you're going to think this book sucks. And J.K. Rowling has to be okay with that because if she was also trying to reach the literature professor at Harvard University, she's going to fail. Yeah, I think that more people need to understand this concept. How do you really differentiate what your audience is or who you're trying to serve with something? Who's it for uh, versus just generalizing too much? Is there a way to really narrow it down? Well, for your audience in particular, I think it's very important to be truthful here, which is lots of the time your who's it for is you. You're doing this to make a living. You're doing this to be able to be independent. You're doing this to start your gig. And here's the truth. The truth is no one wants to be hustled. Nobody woke up this morning saying, I wish someone would invade my personal space, email me too many times, come up with some clever come on, and (laughs) somehow hustle me because it's important to them. Right. But when we look at 
up and coming entrepreneurs, that's our vibe because it's so hard. It's so much work that people resort to, I really need this sale. I really need this blog post. I really need this link, but it's frustrating because it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is people have a choice and their choice is to ignore you. So if you show up for you, no matter how clever you are, we're going to do everything we can to ignore you. But if you show up with generosity and turn on lights and open doors and connect people, it's different, right? So it's one thing to say, I'm playing a long con here. I'm going to do three nice things for this person and then I'll ask him for something. It's another to simply be of service. That doesn't mean you're giving everything away, but it means that you are creating value simply by appearing. So when we're thinking about what we're wanting to do to help people, and we have to have this attitude, this mindset of service toward others. How do we really articulate that well? Because at the same time, people need to eat, right? A creative needs to be able to eat at some point. So at what point do they draw that line of this is free or this is just the way I'm going to live versus I do need to make a sale at some point? What does that kind of, what does that process look like exactly? All right, so let's decode it a little bit because generosity doesn't mean free. That uh, the heart surgeon who saves your life sends you a $14,000 bill and you eagerly pay it mm -hmm. because the generous act was saving your life, not doing the surgery for free. That it is generous for a musician to go outside their comfort zone. It is generous for uh, somebody who's organizing an event to make it better than it needed to be. And we pay for it happily. So that's the first part. The second part is I never accept the excuse, I got to eat. Because if you got to eat, go get a job cleaning latrines. Because there's plenty of cog jobs that will pay you. Even Stephen, you do the work, you get paid. That's not the way you can appropriately approach entrepreneurship or leadership. In those cases, it's not, I will do something for you right now and you will pay for it right now. Because I don't know you, I'm not aware of you, and I don't trust you. And if I don't trust you, and you haven't built something around you, why would I pay you, right? And you know, one of the things in the freelancers workshop that Akimbo runs is watching people tie themselves into knots about how much they charge for something, right? The question was, uh, when someone hires someone cheaper than you, what do they get? And the answers are like, inferior work, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I said, well, what do the people more expensive than you say about you? Because it's, right. you know, it's turtles all the way down. Yeah. Anyone who buys something thinks they're making the right choice. That's why they did it. They bought it because it was worth more than it cost as far as they are concerned. So what you've got to figure out is how to show up for the right people in the right way. And they decide that what you're selling is worth more than it costs. And they're not going to decide that because you hustle them. They're going to decide that because they trust you. And they trust you because somehow you've earned connection. I love it. I think it's such a powerful statement. You know, someone who actually has a great example of this, that I've, I've heard the story, I believe I've heard you tell it actually a few times, but uh, your wife starting a bakery, really fascinating how she took a lot of these principles and, and applied them there. I don't know if she learned them from you or you learned them from her, but one way or the other, you guys made it happen. And, and it was really an inspiring story to hear about somebody who wasn't trying to be the, the least expensive or trying to just get a sale, but trying to serve somebody that had something specific that they were looking for. Could you talk about that story a little bit? Well, uh, by the way, bakery is the biggest gluten-free craft bakery in the world. Um, and it's Oh, is it? Wow, okay. 
Yeah, it's grown quite a bit. Wow. Um, I am not involved in it. It's totally her show. Uh, but she made the decision that in a place like New York, it's big enough that the number of people who are looking for dairy-free, gluten-free, and kosher baked goods is sufficient to build a business around. So if people call her up and say, do you have anything with no sugar? She says, no. And they say, do you have anything that's vegan? She says, no, we use eggs. And when they say, do you have uh, cinnamon rolls? She says, no, those you need to get from a bakery that has gluten. All those people, she eagerly sends somewhere else because her job is not to have everyone as a customer. She's not going to be able to hide the fact that other bakeries exist, right? That today, in whatever you do for a living, your customers know more than you because they're, everything's a click away. Mm-hmm. Instead, you say, for the people who want this, that's what we do. You'll pay a lot, but you get more than you pay for. And that's a brave, difficult decision to make because there's all this pressure on you to not disappoint anyone, your in-laws, your cousins, your neighbors, everyone is a critic, and to be the cheapest because you don't have the guts to stand for something. But the race to the bottom is fraught because you might win or come in second. That's absolutely right. I have to say this, that you and Helene are the definition of a power couple in my book. (laughs) I love that we got to bring her achievements into this conversation today. And I actually want to highlight something that you said. Her job is not to have everyone as a customer. She's clearly defined who it's for and what it's for. Here's a problem I've noticed among many entrepreneurs. We actually know this. We have an idea of who it's for at least, and we know what it's for, meaning our product or service. However, there seems to be something that holds us back. And it's this idea that we're not good enough yet or we're not at the professional level, so people can't see it yet, which I know is a wrong outlook. And in this book, The Practice, you refer to this as there's no such thing as writer's block, but instead there is only developing the pattern of practice. Well, you know, pick your favorite creator uh, and then go listen to some of their demo tapes or some of their early plays or uh, go look at pictures of the original Starbucks store or I can go down the list, read my early blog posts. They're all terrible. All of those things are terrible. Joni Mitchell's original demo, which I heard the other night, not worth listening to for more than a minute. Billy Grohl's demo CD, unlistenable. (laughs) That's the only way to get to listenable, which is the only way to get to great, is a practice. The practice is committing to the work regardless of the outcome until you have enough insight that then you can start honing in on what your audience actually needs. It's so true. You know, I'm going to speak to that as well. And I've referenced this a few times. My initial blog post I did, I think I've made them disappear from the internet, maybe. (laughs) Um, And then my original podcast I did many years ago, it's still out there. But if I listen to it, it's just a reminder that, wow, I I came a long way. But the point is, I, I, I got to where I am today by doing the things I did yesterday, right? And just continued to do them time and time again. Now, I will say a lot of people that I talk to Uh, listeners of this podcast, even the thing that holds them back from doing this is the fear of it because they're scared of what people are going to think of it or that they might even be made fun of for it. Uh, What do you say to somebody that's really facing that right now? If you're lucky, people are going to make fun of it. Hmm. More likely, they're just going to ignore you. Uh, You're already living in an uncomfortable place. You're already living with frustration and disappointment. So how much worse could it get? And the key is to realize that all criticism is not the same. Uh, About 10 years ago, I was walking on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and I passed a small playground. And from inside the playground, I hear a four-year-old or a five-year-old taunting, just heckling someone. 
And then I realized they're taunting me. They're making fun of my haircut. They're making fun of the way I walk. This is like some little kid. I don't know this little kid. I got to tell you that when I was six, I would have been crushed if this had happened to me. And now I'm 50 at the time, 50. I'm like, screw you, buddy. I don't care about your opinion. And I walk on by. His criticism is irrelevant to me. doesn't matter. And what you've got to figure out is who are you seeking to serve? And then you've got to ignore everybody else. And then back to where we started, which is if what you have is generous, how dare you hold it back? You're not the kind of person that does that. On the other hand, if you have a hunch it's selfish and you're just looking for a hustle, then yeah, thanks for not saying anything. Yeah, I'm glad you got past that five-year-old who was heckling you. That's I'm glad you made it through that. Sounds, <laughs> it sounds pretty intense. <laughs> I think that many of us, this is something that we really that we struggle with a lot. Like this is this is tough for people to actually put things into practice because it also takes a level of self-discipline. Maybe if they're, we're not worried about necessarily what other people are going to say. And like you're saying, if people do, it's actually, it's, it's good for us. We can improve based off of that. But just the simple act of doing something repeatedly, I feel like that the world we live in today struggles from, for lack of a better term, chronic inconsistency. We have a really hard time sticking with what we say we're going to do. Yeah, I love that phrase, chronic inconsistency. The thing is, if you actually want to be one of the few people who gets to the other side, you have to model your behavior on the people who've gotten to the other side. And you pick whatever field you want. You can't show me very many people who got lucky and were an overnight success, where Oprah called them on the phone and the next day they were famous. Right. Like that happened to Justin Bieber, but not too many other people. And so I think it's foolish to give the responsibility for your success to outsiders who don't even know you exist when you can take it yourself. Such a good point. I love that. There's something in the book that you mentioned. You say, doing what you love is for amateurs. Love what you do is the mantra for professionals. Yeah. And I think that that is such a true statement. It's a matter of us being willing to actually step up and, and do what we, or, and love what we do and just keep on going after it every single day. And I think when we develop a love for the, for the act, the practice, I believe that we can actually go so much further. And I probably took that quote out of context a little bit, but that's the way that it really spoke to me when I was uh, reading the book and underlining it. Cause that, that really spoke to me a lot because I think so many of us were in this society that says you have to, you have to do what you love, right? Always just go after, do what you love, find your passion, find what you were made for all those different things. And you bring something totally different to the table with this. You're saying to practice and to develop a skill instead. Yeah, we totally agree. And then the last part is how much more reliable is it to have a posture that I'm going to love whatever I do, as opposed to I only do things I love. Because then whatever you do, you can love it. We'll get right back to today's episode. But first, I want to share the number one organic marketing strategy for growing your brand. It's called podcast guesting. Whether you're an established business owner or an entrepreneur that's just getting started, being a guest on podcast is the smartest marketing move that you can make. To help you become a successful guest, I've put together a 12-step guide for podcast guesting, which will explain everything from the gear you need to quickly finding the ideal podcast to be a guest on. If you'll visit creatingabrand.com slash guest, you'll be able to get started immediately. No email or registration required. I trust that this 12-step guide will serve you well in your podcast guesting journey. And now let's get back to today's episode.
I'd like to transition this conversation and talking about the subtitle of your new book, The Practice, which is Shipping Creative Work. Can you break down the meaning of this for us? Shipping creative work. So creative. Creative means a human act, not done by a machine, something that might not work, something that hasn't been done before, something generous. Shipping, because if it doesn't ship, it doesn't count. If it's just internal, it's a hobby, which is fine, but then it's not the work. And work means we do it even when we don't feel like it. We do it when we said we would do it. We do it when we promised. Shipping creative work is the only work that's left for most of us if we want a good job because all the other stuff is being done by a computer or outsourced. So what's left is that part of your day when you show up and do something that wouldn't have been the same if you hadn't done it. So in the middle of shipping and work, you have this word creative. Now, many people question their creative abilities, but you have a very different perspective on this. And it's something in the book that really stood out to me. You talk about creativity being a skill, not a talent. So even once, have you said something funny? Even once, have you helped somebody out? Even once, have you solved an interesting problem? I've never met anyone who answered all three questions, no. So if you've done it even once, we're no longer discussing whether you're capable of being creative because you have been. Now we're just discussing whether you choose to be creative again. That's a skill. It's not something you're born with. So this is, I mean, this is something that most people don't, I've not heard anyone else say this. This is kind of the first time I've ever heard anyone talk about that. They talk about how it's a natural born talent that you have, not a skill that you can acquire. Can you explain it a little bit deeper for us so we can really understand how we can begin to develop this within ourselves? Yeah, well, it's super easy to prove that this is true. Like, do you really think that Bob Dylan, when he was four, just getting out of the crib, was busy doing stuff that would earn him a Nobel Prize? Or do you think somewhere along the way he made a bunch of choices and put some effort into it? Or, uh, you know, pick your favorite entrepreneur, uh, somebody who's built a business significantly bigger than themselves. In China, there's a woman who actually is functionally illiterate. She's 80 now, who built a multi-billion dollar company selling spices. Do you think she was born that way? I don't think so. So we know that this is something that you can acquire, that it is involves dancing with fear. It involves showing up even when you don't feel like it. It involves persisting when you were wrong, not good enough in the wrong place at the wrong time and figure out how to do better next time. These are all choices that we get to make just like we get to make at the gym, right? You don't get born with a lot of muscles, you earn them. And the same thing is true with creativity. So that's shipping creative work. If it doesn't ship, it doesn't count. We are all creative because creativity is a skill that each of us can learn. And lastly, the work. We do it when we don't feel like it or when we said we would do it. Now let's talk about putting creative work into practice. What does this look like for us? Smallest viable audience, smallest viable breakthrough. Find the smallest group of people who can sustain you. Bring them the smallest valid leap forward and do that. I, I remember the first time I met a star-crossed entrepreneur. It was 1983. He showed up in my office and he said he had an idea for this electronic device that was going to, and I'm quoting here, cut through the market like a hot knife through butter. And then he went on to explain how he was going to raise all this money and buy one commercial on one TV show, and then he was going to be rich. And everyone was going to buy this extraordinary product. And this is someone 
who didn't have two nickels to rub together. And I was like, why don't you just figure out a business that brings coffee to your local office park and makes $100? Why don't you start with that? Because the smallest viable audience and the smallest viable breakthrough teach you what it means to engage with other people, a small group of people, and solve their problem. And then you can do it again and again and again. And that's how they all get built. Silicon Valley is really confusing because that's not really how business works. You're definitely right about that. And I've actually been guilty of this myself. I'll call it like the Silicon Valley mindset. Uh, And whether it comes from TV or looking at the outlier startups that just see huge success overnight, we look at it and say that's the approach that we should take with our businesses as well. And because of it, I've, I've been guilty of it and I've failed time and time again whenever I get stuck in that mindset. Yeah, so this is part of the problem with the people who want to make a living on YouTube or with podcasts. Because they say, I'm going to make a living selling ads on a podcast. And I'm like, well, how many people would need to listen to your podcast to make an advertiser happy enough that you would make a living? And the answer is 600,000. And I'm like, well, but you're doing a podcast about dollhouses and you're not going to get 600,000. There's a mismatch here. Or you're doing a podcast about sports. A lot of people are interested, but there's enough podcasts that you're not going to get to 600,000. So there's a mismatch between your smallest viable audience and what you can achieve. Whereas if you're building a podcast to say, I want the 20 people in my industry who are going to pick a consultant in the next year to hear my point of view over time and learn to trust me, well, that is an audience that you could possibly achieve. And you're not making your money from ads, you're making your money by earning trust. And so there isn't a really obvious direct way where some uh, new entrepreneur is going to, from the outside, hustle their way to the inside. It doesn't happen that way. Instead, what we do is we earn trust and we earn attention we build connection, and then we do it again. I love this point. I want to go into this a little bit deeper, but first I'm going to just share a quick little story about somebody I met at a conference. She was one of the keynote speakers, and uh, I got the opportunity to sit with her and talk with her. And she said, Alex, can I tell you a little secret? I was like, sure. And she goes, I've only ever helped 1,200 people. And she goes, but I don't ever really have to work. And all I do all day is serve those 1,200 people, and they keep on coming back for more. And because of that, I am a completely set for life multimillionaire. But all I did was find the 1,200 people that wanted my help the most, and I've only served them. And I think that, that it's always spoken to me, and it's something that sounds so counterculture, right? The culture says you need 100,000 followers on every social media account now, at least, right? To, to even begin breaking ground, you need all this, all that. But the truth is, if we can just find the tribe, the group that really we can truly serve, then we're able to actually make what we need to off of that to live and to survive with, again, our mindset being more so, how can I creatively serve these individuals instead? Well said. You know, I mean, uh, my friend Amanda Palmer did the most successful music Kickstarter in history. It's probably been eclipsed, but at the time, uh, she raised $1.2 million in 30 days. And she used to be part of a group called the Dresden Dolls. When she was on the Dresden Dolls, uh, they called her into their offices, the record label did, and said, we're letting you guys off the label. We're kicking you off. And they were heartbroken. They said, you only sold 20,000 copies of your last record. You're a failure. Amanda added up her followers from the Kickstarter that broke the world record. And you guessed it. She had exactly 20,000 followers. 
That's so cool. I love that story. That's a great example to use here and just really reinforces the point that's just so important to focus on that smallest audience, who you can actually serve. It's a great story. Thank you for using that as an example. Now, for the sake of time, I actually want to circle back to the idea of shipping our work because if it doesn't ship, it doesn't count. One of the main things I find that seems to hold people back is this idea of perfection first. They want to be perfect before somebody else sees it. Well, Perfect is a tricky word because it leads to perfectionism and perfectionism is a trap because you're never going to be perfect. What we really should do is embrace a different phrase, which is what good enough means. Good enough means it's good enough. Oh, that's sufficient. So if you want to sell me a muffin as I'm commuting to work, it doesn't have to be the muffin that Lionel Poulain would have baked me on Rue de Cherche-Midi in Paris at the peak of his career. It just has to be a muffin that's good enough to solve my muffin problem today. Thank you very much. Right. And if you want me to talk about the muffin, then it has to be good enough for me to talk about it. But no one ever said anything about it being perfect. And you know, you, there's something called the Internet Wayback Machine, which you can easily find oh, yeah. online. Yep. And using it, you can look at the early versions of any website you care about. And what you'll see is that every single one of them launched and looks different than it looks today. Because good enough opens the door for better, whereas perfect keeps you from shipping altogether. When I first got started in the online space, I learned how to do some some web development. It was something that I was actually curious about. It was really fun for me. I learned that it wasn't for me, but initially it was something I was able to do and help some friends do as well. However, I looked at Nike, Amazon, these, these very established brands, and I compared what I was designing to what they were designing. And that's when somebody initially told me about Wayback Machine. I looked at they're like, look at them when they started compared to you where you are today. And it really put things in perspective. And that's initially when I realized that I had a bit of a perfectionist mindset that I had to, to learn to overcome. So what do you say to somebody? Let's even go to Alex just years ago. What do you say to the person who is struggling with this? How can they begin to overcome this mindset? Well, are you doing generous work or not? You know, in, in, the, in the practice, I talk about being a lifeguard. If someone is drowning and you didn't get perfect scores on your water safety instructor test, should you not jump in and save them? Should you run down the street 15 minutes later, come back with a better lifeguard than you? Right? If you can actually find someone who's drowning, I think you will discover A, they're not a perfectionist if you're willing to help them. And B, you don't have to be a perfectionist if you care enough to make a difference. Love it. That's such a good example of it because yeah, all of us would just jump right in and it's a matter of us really sitting back and getting real with ourselves saying, are we really going to be adding value with what we're doing? If we are, we need to ship it, right? It needs to get out there to people. That's it. And that's why hustle is the enemy. As I said earlier, no one wants to be hustled. And there, you know, it's one thing to say this hockey player hustles because that's something that's built into the sport. But if you are there to serve people in business, creating pressure, creating, uh, you know, all sorts of little bits of shortcuts to somehow trick your way into the zone of trust. They make good stories. You can even make a movie about it, but you know, bluffing your way up the elevator so that you can somehow give someone your pitch. That's not how you're going to build a real company. It's not how you're going to build a real practice that you are proud of. You want to create the kind of work that people will seek you out, not depend on yourself to be the one who can always shortcut to the head of the line. Love it. It's so powerful. Seth, this has been such a fun conversation. Can you share some final words of wisdom with the audience today? Oh, I got 
no more words of wisdom. I think you have extracted all of them from me. Here's what I think is more important. Uh, you don't need more advice and you don't need more time. You just need to decide. You need to decide if you care enough about this work to do the work. And if you do, go do the work. If you don't, well then stop pretending. It's a great way to end this episode. Seth, thank you so much for your time today. It was an honor getting to talk to you. Absolutely my pleasure. We'll see you soon. Creative work does not come with a guarantee, but there is a pattern to who succeeds and who doesn't. And engaging in the consistent practice of its pursuits is the best way forward. Such wise words from Seth Godin. I have one recommendation for you. Go back and listen to this episode again. The wisdom that Seth shared changed my perspective on many aspects of both success and business that I had just never even thought of before. Once you've gone back and listened to this episode, the next thing I encourage you to do is to pick up a copy of this book, The Practice. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Also from there, I'll have links to his podcast and to his blog as well. Or if you're interested, you can just go to Google and type in Seth. Yes, that's right. Google knows Seth on first name basis. Seth, thank you again for being a guest. It was truly an honor to hear from you today. To learn more about Seth Godin and to pick up a copy of his book, The Practice, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 074. Thank you as always for listening, and I'm looking forward to bringing you another Masterclass episode next week.